This is Jamda on the go, your review of the content featured in Jamda, the research-focused monthly journal of AMDA, the Society for Post-Acute and Long-Term Care Medicine. Statements made by guests on this podcast are their own opinions and are not necessarily the positions of the society. A speaker's appearance on the program does not imply an endorsement of them, their views, or any entity they represent. This podcast is eligible for a BPLM pre-approved certified medical director credits. Details will be provided at the end of this podcast. And now here's our host for Jamda on the Go, Dr. Carl Steinberg. Welcome to Jamda on the Go for September 2023. I'm Dr. Carl Steinberg, your host for this podcast. Today, it's my pleasure to welcome Dr. Paul Katz, one of Jamda's co-editors-in-chief. This afternoon, we're delighted to have the opportunity to also welcome to the podcast the authors of two articles in the current issue of JAMDA, the Journal of Post-Acute and Long-Term Care Medicine, or as some people still refer to it, the Journal of the American Medical Directors Association. We hope you're continuing to like this interactive style with the content experts who actually did the research. Dr. Katz is professor of geriatrics at Florida State University and also serves as medical director for Westminster Communities of Florida and Presbyterian Senior Living based in Pennsylvania. He's a past president of AMDA with a research focus on medical staff organization and its relationship to quality. Paul is a certified medical director with over 40 years of clinical experience in nursing homes, assisted living, and outpatient geriatric care. So today your editors have chosen three articles that we'll be highlighting from the September issue that we think will be of particular interest to our listeners. These topics include a paper discussing the ethical challenges that arose during COVID-19, specifically focused on the balance between resident safety and autonomy. A second paper reports on the feasibility and effects of the Namaste care intervention for persons with advanced dementia and their family caregivers. And then finally, we're going to review a study that examines the link between antipsychotic medication exposure and dysphagia in hospitalized patients with heart failure. So we are tickled to welcome two principal authors of articles we'll be discussing, Monique Martin-Parent, or Martin Parent, and Mary Lee Yus. It's an honor to start our discussion with Monique Martin Parent. Ms. Martin Parent is an alumna of the Department of Health Disciplines at Athabasca University, Calgary, Alberta, Canada. She has a master's of nursing degree with a specialty certification in gerontology. Monique's experience as a nurse is extensive including work in inpatient and community addictions and mental health, corrections, policy, senior health, and continuing care. Wow, that is, that's pretty broad. Uh, and currently, Dr. Martin Parent is working as a clinical nurse educator, leading the advancement of safe, quality patient care. Monique is the lead author of the article, Promoting Resident Autonomy to Maintain Quality of Life. And Dr. Mary Lee Use, PhD, is a postdoctoral fellow and instructor in the School of Nursing at McMaster University in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. Her research journey is inspired by her experience as a registered nurse, supporting persons living with dementia and their families on a long-term care unit. She is passionate about pursuing research on namaste care to meaningfully engage persons living with dementia and their family and friend caregivers. She has research interests in co-creating and implementing caregiver interventions for persons living with dementia, including palliative approaches to care in long-term care, non-pharmacological approaches, and dementia education to support healthcare providers. So that's all music to our ears. Uh, and uh, Dr. Yus is the lead author of 
Feasibility and Effects of Namaste Care for Persons with Advanced Dementia in Canadian Long-Term Care Homes. Welcome, Drs. Katz and Yus and Ms. Martin Parent. Okay, so we'll start our discussion today with the article, Promoting Resident Autonomy to Maintain Quality of Life by Ms. Martin Parent. So Monique, would you please start by telling us a little bit about yourself and your team? So I'm a registered nurse with a Master of Nursing degree, and in the final course of my master's program, I was tasked with developing a paper with the goal of publication. My co-author, Dr. Georgia DeWart, was my professor, and following the completion of the course, we worked together to fine-tune the article for submission. Great. Uh, and what was the impetus for exploring this issue? During the pandemic, I provided mental health support to individuals living in continuing care facilities, and I saw firsthand the impact restrictions had on individuals' mental and emotional health, behaviors, and overall well-being. And as mentioned in the article, my family was personally affected by the continuing care restrictions, as my dad was a resident of a continuing care facility. He faced four consecutive months of isolation from restrictions at the beginning of the pandemic. And when we were finally able to see each other again, I was shocked at the impact the restrictions had on his physical, mental, and cognitive health. Seeing the negative effects of the restrictions and the significant impact they had on his quality of life made me want to further explore the issue of resident autonomy to maintain quality of life. Yeah, thank you for doing this work. I think many of our listeners are you know, that's going to resonate with, with a lot of us uh, uh, as we witnessed firsthand in the people we were looking after, uh, the sort of failure to thrive and weight loss and depression and uh, worsening cognitive status that uh, that was associated with the restrictions in, in visitors and so on. Uh, so did you encounter any challenges in conducting this study? Well, this wasn't a typical research study. However, some people may find just the topic in general controversial. Um, the COVID pandemic was a very challenging time for everyone, as you mentioned. And we have received feedback highlighting the challenges governments, healthcare organizations, and continuing care facilities faced in trying to balance staff and resident safety, autonomy, and perceived risk. We don't want to minimize these challenges. Rather, we want to just bring the resident experience to the forefront as these are their homes and they were affected more than anyone by these restrictions. Yeah, yeah. And I think in the U.S., we feel fairly confident that if something like this ever happens again, God forbid, uh, they will probably not implement such harsh uh, restrictions just because the the harm seemed to outweigh the potential benefits, but it's a difficult ethical issue because what about people who live in, in a facility who are very risk adverse and maybe they don't want people from outside bringing, you know, bringing a disease in. Uh, of course, that begs the whole question about staff bringing it in. Uh, so, uh, but anyway, what are your take home messages? Uh, what, what have you learned from this study and what's uh, something that our, uh, that our listeners can can take home from it. So we really hope that governments, healthcare organizations, and continuing care facilities, um, they, we highlight that they need to promote and safeguard resident autonomy to maintain quality of life. This includes allowing residents to have a greater say in their care delivery and day-to-day -day life and supporting them in positive risk-taking. Um, the lack of autonomy has been a long-standing issue within continuing care facilities and was only exacerbated during the pandemic. Residents also need to be seen as essential stakeholders and be involved in all levels of policymaking that impact their home and quality of life. Yeah, yeah. 
Let me ask you something a little off topic. Uh, uh, you know, in the U.S., there's been such a uh, sort of a change in attitude toward public health and, and where um, people really used to respect public health. And now there's so much misinformation that uh, uh, people, you know, don't believe vaccines work and, and you know, think COVID was just a big plot or a scam. Um, do you see that in Canada also? And to what extent? Yes, I would say we are seeing very similar things. Um, there's, there's, you know, a mixed bag. Some individuals um, feel that, you know, the restrictions and all these precautions are very necessary. And there's other ones, like you said, that um, are against them. Um, and so we really do need to, uh, as a, as a, I guess, healthcare in general, we need to kind of work on better messaging and better support um, for those individuals that have lacked trust in the system now. Yeah, great. Thank you. Well, I'm sorry to hear that. I've always thought of Canadians as so, you know, civilized and evolved and so on, but I guess uh, we're setting a bad example down here. Um, so uh, I'm going to ask you what, if anything, would you suggest as a next step in research here or, or further uh, evaluation of this topic area? And then I'm going to ask uh, Dr. Katz if he has anything to to share. Well, as you mentioned, um, the ethical implications surrounding kind of balancing that safety and autonomy are quite complex. And currently, there is limited guidance to support balancing safety with autonomy and perceived risk. Therefore, I definitely think that this is an area that for future research. Thank you, Monique, um, for a great presentation. I, I found your paper um, resonated, uh, as Carl was saying, uh, as a caregiver, uh, as a um, medical provider in these settings. The And you made it very clear that the balance between safety and autonomy remains a huge issue in long-term care settings. So my question is, did you find the residents and their families were or are able to adequately weigh the risks and benefits of less stringent isolation during a pandemic such as COVID? So that wasn't um, something that we specifically looked at for our article. However, I will say based on my professional and personal experience um, within continuing care facilities, often the care facilities promoted um, increased safety precautions and discussions weighing the risks and benefits of less stringent precautions were kind of up to residents and families to have independently. However, I think it is important that residents and families be supported in un understanding potential outcomes of their choices to ensure they are making informed decisions. Yeah. And uh, of course, the challenge is in a congregate setting, such as in long-term care, um, Sometimes you may make a decision as an individual resident, but that does impact uh, your neighbor and the staff. So it just makes the decision-making even more complex, as you noted. But th again, thank you for this wonderful work. Yeah. All right. Well, that's been some great discussion and perspective. Uh, Monique, many thanks for taking the time to chat with us today on Jammed on the Go, and uh, all the best in your continued uh, career, and uh, hopefully you'll send us some more uh, good, good studies from north of the border there. This episode will return after this special message. Join AMDA on November 17, 2023 for a brand new virtual symposium, Finding Your Value in Evolving Payment Models. Speakers will tackle issues such as 
defining value-based reimbursement models, evolution and trends of traditional CPD coding, impact of diagnosis coding and documentation on PDPM and value-based models ICD-10HCC scoring, value-based medicine reimbursement perspective the ground view, ask the experts, where are your opportunities in value-based reimbursement? Visit paltc.org for details and to register. So our second paper for discussion today is Feasibility and Effects of Namaste Care for Persons with Advanced Dementia in Canadian Long-Term Care Homes. So another civilized, evolved guest, Dr. Mary Lee Yuse, the lead author of this study. So Mary Lee, can you tell us a little bit about you and your team and what this namaste intervention consists of for listeners who might not be familiar? Absolutely, Carl. Uh, thank you for having me here today. So as you mentioned earlier, I'm a postdoctoral fellow at McMaster University. I'm working on national and international projects with my supervisor, Dr. Sharon Kasseline and, and her SPA LTC team. And this stands for strengthening a palliative approach to long-term care. Our research is all about empowering families and staff to provide personalized and high-quality care for long-term care residents living with chronic and life-limiting illnesses, including dementia. So we want to ensure that individuals are provided with a seamless transition from chronic disease management to appropriate end-of-life planning and care. Um, with regards to your second question related to Namaste, uh, so Namaste Care was a focus of a project that was funded by the Canadian Institutes of Health Research, the Alzheimer's Society of Canada, and Geriatric Education and Research in Aging Sciences. So Namaste Care was created by Professor Joyce Simard, actually in the United States, as an innovative intervention guided by concepts of person-centered care. Namaste Care addresses social isolation and quality of life for persons with advanced dementia by engaging them in meaningful activities such as listening to music, receiving aromatherapy, accessing slow-paced nutrition and hydration, and participating in conversation. Uh, this intervention is typically delivered by long-term care staff, but family carers and volunteers are also encouraged to participate. And lots of emerging evidence have arose from Namaste Care and long-term care, demonstrating reduced antipsychotic use, lower incidence of delirium, improved pain, and better quality of life. Wow. Yeah. Well, what's not to like about that, right? That that sounds uh, right up, uh, I'm sure, most of our listeners' alley. Uh, how time-consuming and sort of resource-intensive uh, is this intervention? Uh, if, if you have a way to kind of estimate, you know, hours per week of staff time or, or something along those lines. Yeah, that's a great question, Carl. And it really depends on the resources available in each long-term care home. Um, I mean, in our study, we didn't provide um, the homes with extra resources because we didn't want to be one of those uh, research team that gives resources, pulls away, and there's no sustainability right. or building of capacity. So I would say this this program in this particular situation, the home is able to implement it uh, twice a week on average for residents for 90 minutes at a time as a group format. Great. Thank you for that. Uh, so I, I think I know what the impetus for exploring this issue was. I mean, uh, clearly, uh, if we can do things that uh, uh, improve the lived experience of, of uh, persons with dementia and uh, allow us to uh, have to uh, pull a prescription out of the bag, uh, you know, less frequently, then that's that's all good. Let me ask if you encountered any challenges in conducting this study. 
Absolutely. So some of the the challenges we encountered were related to recruitment. So as you can imagine, persons with advanced dementia, they're near the end stage of their uh, chronic illness. So it's inevitable that we will experience some resident um, death. So that's, and we were prepared for the and that's why we had a feasibility target of having at least 85% of residents have three months of data collection completed. Um, Another challenge that I alluded to earlier was the constraints of asking staff to implement this intervention under real-world conditions. So again, no additional members were brought on. So staff really had to reevaluate their staffing mix and assign roles. So for example, housekeeping staff were responsible for bringing residents to and from the Namaste care room, while personal support workers, nurses, or activity aides, they took on the role of delivering the intervention because that's more uh, familiar to what they're used to doing. Well, that's that's really outside the box, and that's that's uh, great to hear. You know, you like to hope that uh, that most facilities would be able to to do that in the interest of of helping their residents. Uh, how do you think these findings might change clinical practice? I mean, obviously, if facilities were to learn about this intervention and embrace it and implement it, uh, uh, there'd clearly be some good there. Uh, any any other insights on that, or how do we go about doing that? Yeah, absolutely. I, I find that there really is a need to reevaluate that persons with advanced dementia can still benefit from meaningful activities when it's delivered as part of a intentional and structured program. Um, this study really showed that you know long-term care staff should also be prioritizing social care needs as much as the physical day-to-day care needs of residents. Um, and it also showed that family members can benefit from being part of these interventions because they really did see improvements in findings um, in terms of the program and also benefited their own well-being as well. So we really need to have that concept of a community partnership approach where every individual in long-term care has a role and is accountable for supporting people living with advanced dementia. Mm, yes. And and I think, uh, you know, for family members who want to help and so on, uh, I mean, this is the perfect kind of thing that, that will enhance their loved ones and, and other people and also maybe offload a little bit of staff who may, may already be uh, stretched pretty thin. Uh, so I love that spa LTC, right? The word spa, I, I think back to, you know, some of the facilities who uh, for bathing, they make it like a spa. Uh, and, and let me just ask, you know, as far as palliative care and, and the sort of advanced care planning aspect of this, what, uh, what did that consist of as far as um, uh, looking toward ensuring goal concordant care, if at all? Absolutely. So, I mean, when we do talk about advanced care planning and these um, types of discussions with families and residents, lots of things that come up is quality of life and comfort. And Namaste Care is one such program that can really ensure that people's goals are met near the end, no matter you know how advanced their dementia becomes. So, um, we really need to think on more of you know focusing on reducing pain. Um, you know, improving that quality of life, making sure that people's stories are upheld. All, all the way until the end of their lives as well. That's great. That's very aspirational. Paul, any questions or, or uh, comments? Um, yeah, I, and one, I think you've, um, Mary Lee, you've already alluded to it. If you had a guess, what would you say the minimum exposure is needed in order to see um, benefit from the intervention. You mentioned you deliver on average 90 minutes twice a week. Is that kind of the minimum level? Right. That's a great question, Paul. Absolutely. Um, if I 
this is to be so bold as to provide a rough guess without doing further study, I would say anywhere from two to five sessions a week could be ideal. Um, ideally, the protocol does mention that it should actually be delivered every day or five days a week, twice a day. But as you can imagine, the realities in long-term care in Canada or I'm sure elsewhere, um, that would be quite burdensome. Um, so some things that I've been thinking about is um, possibilities of delivering the program in, in individual formats so that it's not too time consuming to bring residents to and from non-mistake care rooms. So we can supplement the sessions um, that way. In a, a related question, how much training is required to lead a session, whether it be family member or uh, mm -hmm. uh, an aide or a nurse? Yeah, that's another good question. So the activities that are part of Namaste Care, it's most likely, they're most likely going to be quite familiar to nurses, um, even to families too. We're talking about providing snacks and beverages, um, listening to music. So they wouldn't need extensive training. So in our study, they were provided with written resources to our training session to familiarize themselves with the equipment, such as the projector, computer tablets, uh, review processes. But what's also important is the ongoing coaching. So we provided that through our research assistants and they they did this during uh, weekly outreach visits to provide extra support. Mm, thank you. Great. Well, that's so great. Much. Yeah, that's been a great discussion. Thanks again, Marilee, for your great work and then uh, best to you and a, a successful ongoing career uh, touching a lot of people's lives, uh, I hope, uh, you, you know, with interventions like this. Uh, so, Paul, uh, we want to conclude with one additional article for which we're hoping you can provide a synopsis. And this article is by, I'm going to probably butcher it, I'm going to say Rael, if it's spelled R-A-E-L-E, -E, Robinson. We didn't have Dr. Robinson on the podcast to tell me how to say it. Uh, and colleagues from the Division of Geriatrics and Gerontology in the Department of Medicine at the University of Wisconsin. And their paper is entitled Acute Antipsychotic Use and Presence of Dysphagia Among Older Veterans with Heart Failure. Uh, so our listeners and readers are no doubt familiar with the association of antipsychotics with dysphagia. So it's relevant to us. And, you know, especially so since uh, a lot of patients seem to have antipsychotics thrown at them while in the acute care hospital uh, for, for a variety of reasons, uh, many of which seem inappropriate by the time they get to us. Uh, anyway, Paul, what can you tell us about this? So thanks, Carl. And so the authors of this article, as you just mentioned, examined whether new antipsychotic exposure uh, in the hospital is associated with dysphagia uh, with heart failure patients. This was a retrospective study, included participants who were antipsychotic naive and who were veterans hospitalized with heart failure and then subsequently discharged to a skilled nursing facility between October 1st, 2010 and November 30th, 2019. Well, almost 10 years. Yeah. Yeah. So a, a good chunk of time. The authors obtained data by linking the Veterans Health Administration electronic medical records with the CMS uh, minimum data set version 3.0 uh, through, through CMS, which gives them information regarding the SNF uh, exposure. The exposure variable was the administration of at least one dose of a typical or atypical antipsychotic during hospitalization. The main outcome measures was uh, were the presence of dys dysphagia as defined by um, a diagnosis code in the hospital. And, and uh, for the SNF admission, 
uh, MDS 3.0 outcome measures that were related to swallowing in dysphagia status. The actual analytic cohort uh, included almost 30,000 veterans with a mean age of 78.5 years. Uh, females made up a very small percentage, only 3%, as you might imagine. Yeah. The, the, the results were that acute antipsychotics were administered to about 10% of this cohort. And those receiving antipsychotics were more likely to have a prior diagnosis of dementia and or to have experienced delirium in the hospital, as you might suspect. The acute antipsychotic exposure was associated with nearly double the risk for dysphagia in the hospital with a relative risk of 1.9. And at the SNF level, acute antipsychotic administration during hospitalization remained um, uh, associated with an increased dysphagia risk with a, a relative risk of 1.2. So the take-home message is that the introduction of any antipsychotic during acute hospitalization is associated with dysphagia that persists into the nursing home rehabilitation uh, and I think that's one of the uh, major findings of the study. As we all know, since swallowing function is critical to hydration, nutrition, and medical management of heart failure, uh, the authors suggest a swallow evaluation might be considered soon after the introduction of antipsychotics. Uh, of course, not starting an antipsychotic is a sure way to avoid these complications. Uh, yeah. Amen to that last statement, Paul. Uh, yeah, so that's uh, it's interesting uh, and perhaps not all that surprising. Uh, you know, I wonder now with the, uh, you know, our our new uh, payment system and the uh, the PDPM that seems to give uh, extra payment to facilities who identify dysphagia, I sometimes worry that uh, it gets overdiagnosed and that people get put on inappropriately restrictive, you know, diet textures and thickened liquids and so on. But uh, there's no question, and the study just bears it out, that uh, antipsychotics are not good for swallowing function and just one more reason to uh, try to avoid them whenever possible. Uh, any yeah. thoughts? I was just going to uh, just expand on what you just said, Carl. I mean, you and uh, Mary Lee were just talking about quality of life. And when you start to go down that path of restricted diet and different textures. We all know that's a huge impact on quality of life. So it's something we need to avoid at all costs. Yeah, it can certainly, I mean, putting somebody on thickened liquids often is kind of like a, a late nail in the coffin, you know, because uh, nobody likes that stuff as as we all, uh, all know. And for our listeners who haven't done a thickened liquid challenge, uh, by all means, uh, give that a try. And if you want to see some fun videos, you can uh, just uh, go on YouTube and punch up Thickened Liquid Challenge and you can see uh, see some uh, people who don't have dementia or dysphagia trying it. So, um, all right. Well, that's going to wrap it up for this Jamda on the Go podcast. Uh, I'd like to thank our guest presenters again for a great discussion. And uh, thanks as always to our editors, associate editors, reviewers, and our staff from Elsevier and AMDA, whose efforts continue to generate one great Jamda volume and podcast after another. So please take a look at the September 2023 issue. References for this podcast can be found at www.jamda.com. That's J-A-M-D-A. 
So until next month, this is Dr. Carl Steinberg signing off for Jamda on the Go. If you are a physician and interested in obtaining a BPLM, pre-approved certified medical director credits for certification or recertification, visit paltc.org slash podcast. Thank you.